millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week is the second episode recorded at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Having taken a closer look at artificial intelligence last time, this time we're going to be taking a look at the future of news. We talked to Hazel Baker, the head of user-generated content at Reuters, about how they are preparing for the rise of deepfakes in the Reuters newsroom. You'll also hear from Emily Withrow at Quartz about their use of chatbots to shape news content for different audiences. And finally, you'll hear from Paul Chung. Paul is the Director of Journalism and Technology Innovation at the Knight Foundation. I'll let him explain what that is, but we talked to him about the future of news gathering prospects for virtual reality and journalism, and what the Knight Foundation is doing to tackle disinformation. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm Hazel Baker, and I'm head of UGC News Gathering at Reuters. I always explain what UGC stands for, user-generated content, and by that I mean anything not filmed by a professional news camera. So Hazel, you've stolen my first question, which was going to be, what is UGC? Um, can you tell me a bit more about where you, where you tend to find UGC, user-generated content? For sure. So um, I just wanted to make that point. Actually, user-generated content is primarily uh, video captured by people on smartphones at the scene of breaking news events, um, posted on social media generally, um, but not always. Sometimes uh, it's captured on smartphones and never shared. Uh, One thing about Reuters is it has a lot of people on the ground um, and sometimes they're in a fantastic position to speak to witnesses, get quotes, um, understand the context and actually ask them, did you film something? Can I see it? Um, So that's one way we get it. But primarily it's actively searching for it on social media um, or following up um, clues that we've got that people might have content. But we also look at other sources, um, uh, sometimes government handouts or handouts from NGOs or um, lots of other organisations who've got material that that really tell a news story that we want to have. And again, we have to put this material through checks. um, So that falls into my work as well. And how often do you see video that you later find out to be fake or immediately know to be fake? Every single day, <laughs> we count a um, video that's that's not uh, authentic every single day. Some days are worse than others and some stories are worse than others. Um, the India-Pakistan conflict at the moment is an absolute minefield for, for video fake news and uh, the amount I've seen in the last, you know, how many days since the, the attack in Kashmir. I mean, uh, we've just seen a, a, a groundswell of material. Um, sometimes are quieter, but again, it, it really is a daily basis that we see things shared the most common way is just when it's a piece of old video that's reshared without context and given a different headline. That's the most common common type, but we see that every single day. And what other types of fake video are there? Well, the other types um, uh, are less common, but but still uh, still a threat. Edited video uh, is is a key one, and that, that spans a huge range of possibilities from people who've sat down carefully at home with an editing software and, and cut out key portions in order to distort, um, all the way through to video that's just been chopped in a different way, but it's lost its context. And sometimes sometimes people don't do that with malice. Um, they simply share the bit that they found interesting, but then that can get um, uh, resurfaced in other scenarios and, and used to tell a completely different story. Um, so that's edited video. Uh, staged video happens. Sometimes we, th- we see things which purport to be real, but actually 
involve actors or a, a reenacted scenario. So that's a, another type we've got to be aware of. Um, CGI video is is not something we encounter all that often, but it is a possibility we, we must consider. Um, and that's uh, that's where deep fakes fit into it at the very end of that scale. It's a, that's a highly manipulated video. And what can an organisation like Reuters do to spot fake video? Well, I think verification of, of video, we need to approach it in a collaborative way. Um, so it's certainly not enough to say, right, the video verification team, that's what they, they can do. We've got to work as an organisation. And Reuters is privileged because we have a huge, huge uh, base of journalists that cover all sorts of different languages, expertise, whether that's subject matter or region. Um, and their knowledge is so, so vital to the verification process. So what we often find is, we have got a dedicated UGC team that focus on video verification because it takes so long and it's a very in-depth process. Um, and if we were to use our regional journalists to try to do all that, that might actually stop them from from getting on the scene of, of news events. So my specialist team look into this um, uh, type of material. We think about what kind of verification we do. We, we consider the source of the context uh, of the video uh, or, or pictures and we consider the content itself. So we forensically examine that content for, for anything that can help us. Um, and then we put those two together. So if we're happy about the source and we're happy about the content, then we start to think, okay, this is looking like an authentic piece of video. But very often there's other questions that need addressing often about the context and that's where we we try to speak to our journalists in that region who work on those stories and ask them you know to watch the video or to to look at the photographs and and to give us their view on anything they're concerned about Um, it's particularly important when we've got um, a language which perhaps isn't a native tongue of any of my team to make sure we listen to what's being said we listen up for regional dialects that kind of you know level of detail um, and even things like weather conditions and and you know the the shadows on the ground can be revealing and it's especially true when you know the area you've just wrapped up a session here at south by southwest on deep fakes and most people listening to this podcast probably know what a deep fake is but for those who don't can you tell us what a deep fake video is Sure. So deep fake um, is a portmanteau word, uh, which mixes um, deep learning and fake. So we're no strangers to what fake videos are, but deep learning is, is the new aspect here because that involves AI. Um, AI, as we know, is a developing area um, and we're seeing its application to um, video software advance, great strides in, in advancement. And, and that's what we're kind of seeing as a threat I guess because at the moment it's really the preserve of, of specialists and some enthusiastic amateurs but we think the technology might come to a point that it's available on people's phones and, and and that could have really um, profound influences on on the kind of content that we start to see spreading on social media. Um, so that's that's what a, a deep fake technically is. Um, there aren't too many examples to work with and in fact that's what drove our session that difficulty in finding a piece to really analyse. We've seen Barack Obama um, manipulated uh, by Washington researchers um, and and we've seen other academics make this material. Apart from that, we have to turn to sort of slightly shadier corners of the internet to look at how people are making these deep fakes. And we really wanted to have a piece of tangible uh, material to work with. So we created our own um, using hypothetical scenario and actors. And what did you learn from creating your own? And were you tempted to try and fool your fellow colleagues at Reuters with it? Uh, we learned a lot. Um, the first was what it takes to make one. Um, I certainly could make a really good deep fake the second time round. <laughs> I was quite pleased with my first attempt. But um, on a serious note, um, we learned that what kind of variables can influence a deep fake and, and what kind of things um, can make a, a more convincing one. So I feel like next time uh, I'm approaching video, if I see that kind of plain backdrop and still head and, and less expressive face, maybe, you know, maybe there'll be some warning signs there because we know that those kind of elements really help 
create a, a convincing deepfake video. Um, we know that deepfakes require a lot of source material, so they need lots of um, uh, video frames of the, the subject in question. Uh, it's quite difficult to, to make a deepfake video of someone who's only been on camera a couple of times. So, so that kind of level of content that you have to feed into the machine to make the deepfake was was really interesting. Um, and then that was a, that was a creation of a deepfake. And then what did we learn about spotting one? Well, we identified a few red flags in our deepfake, and that was something which we think was a, a useful takeaway. Um, the biggest thing for us was the audio to video synchronization issues. We see sync issues a lot, and that's not uncommon. But the way that the sync issues played out in this clip were uh, sort of in and out. We've seen creeping sync before, but we don't usually see in and out sync. So that was that was a, a red flag for for spotting the fake. Um, we saw some issues with mouth shape and sibilant sounds in particular, which uh, people spotted something wasn't quite right. And particularly native speakers of French really noticed what was wrong. Um, and we also looked at um, how, how people's expression and, and very still head in in the deep fake video looked abnormal to people uh, it was because we asked people to stay really still when they were filming um, but that was an interesting thing about what we learned and to to really conclude that the main takeaway point for me was um, people reacted very differently when they knew a deepfake was coming if they were completely in the in the dark uh, they were they felt a sense of unease but it was hard for them to put their finger on exactly what was wrong that's a really interesting learning point because it shows that if you prepare and you sort of know your enemy then um, you you can critically examine stuff more effectively and I think that's really um, key for our learning and, and thinking about what we what we take from this now was I tempted to fool my colleagues <laughs> well I guess in a sense we did but I really didn't want to trick them and didn't want to embarrass them that really wasn't aimed of this experiment it was more to think about how we could test our verification workflows also I think I would have really struggled to trick my colleagues they're a smart bunch um, and certainly in the scenario that we created um, I was showing them a piece of video in isolation that would immediately raise alarm bells we never look at things in isolation they're always placed in context and the mode of transmission is really important I sent them it by whatsapp the first thing they should have done was ask well where did you get it from you know that asking those critical questions is is the main thing so uh it, Easier said than done to fool my colleagues, I would have said. So we talked to Sky News' technology correspondent um, earlier in an episode earlier this year, and I asked him for some predictions for 2019, and I, I asked him to rate them out of 10, and I said, everybody getting faked by a fake video, and he said, oh, I didn't think it was that likely. I'm interested whether you think it's likely to happen in the near future. My sense is there might be a moment where we get collectively faked. Um, are we talking specifically about a deep fake? Or are we talking about fake news in general, fake video in general? We can talk about a fake video in general. Okay, well, that's already happening, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, there are certainly some stories and some regions where there is there is more danger and um, we have to look at levels of media literacy um, and the ability to share material and also the accessibility people have in researching the videos that they encounter um, so unfortunately this you know we, we've seen plenty of fake videos <laughs> circulate and fool large swathes of a population already um, so I think that's that's one thing I'd say in terms of deep fakes will we get one that fool, fools a lot of people I think we're never I think we're unlikely to see one specific video that, that kind of gets the globe fooled. But I think we could definitely see a really highly targeted deepfake video that looks for a, a spot of weakness, whether that be a regional weakness or a kind of story weakness. Um, and using those kind of those social networks, which are, are closed, which reinforce people's beliefs, could really, really have an impact there. And, and people may well believe a deepfake video if it fits the agenda, which they're expecting and, and is presented in a plausible way. So I think it could totally happen. 
And just lastly, we've kind of talked about the idea of um, having a Photoshop for videos before too long and people being able to create videos on their phones whenever they want. In that world, it feels like the cat's very much out of the bag and being able to check video gets harder and harder. Um, and a lot of people, I think, would then feel that there's a role for government in regulating the use of video or regulating at least the way it's used in political circumstances. Um, is that something that you think would be a good idea? I think regulation in political circumstances is, is a very good idea. I think um, showing by example is is a very good start. Um, regulating more at the user level, I think, is is tricky. I mean, you don't want to stop people putting Snapchat bunny ears on themselves. That's just fun. Um, so I think, you know, the, the challenge of regulation is, is a really, really thorny issue. Okay, first off, Emily, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. My name is Emily Withrow. I'm the director of the Court Spot Studio. Um, and first off, can you tell us about Quartz? Sure. It's a global news company. So we have journalists all across the globe, um, and we do a wide range of reporting, uh, both for our website, for our apps. We have management-focused work. We have lifestyle-focused work. Yeah. I've been reading Quartz for a while. I know you've always been quite a forward-thinking outfit. So can you tell me a bit about how technology is used today in the Quartz newsroom? Absolutely. You know, product is at the center of our organization, and we believe that we should meet readers where they are. Um, And so we do a lot of work to think about who our audience is, what they're interested in, and not just, you know, us sort of thinking in a bubble about them, but really um, working to understand them and to build products that um, are going to reach those audiences. Um, And you work specifically on bots. But before we talk about bots, can you tell me what the most interesting uses of technology in reporting recent news stories has been? Yeah, so we just started up an AI studio. So it's QZ.AI, if anybody wants to check it out. Um, And this was funded by a grant from the Knight Foundation. And our mandate is to do a bunch of reporting that is assisted by machine learning and then also to um, develop tools for journalists to to better report with uh, machine learning and um, to better understand that process and how it works. And so the AI studio just published uh, their first (laughs) their first story um, where they trained an algorithm to look at the IPO filing for Lyft. And um, what that what that did was it really examined their IPO filing, specifically the risk factors um, versus a bunch of other IPO filings. And what we can do is we can ask the computer essentially or ask this algorithm to surface anything that's substantially different. Right. So what about this IPO filing is different from the other IPO filings? And then, um, you know, it surfaced a bunch of stuff that Lyft cared about, um, risk factors that they had highlighted um, that, you know, was was substantially different from other IPO filings. And um, that letter reporters done a really interesting path. And now you can read that story online. And we haven't talked about bots at all on Government versus the Robots. This is our first bots related conversation. So talk me through how Quartz is using bots at the moment. Sure. Um, you know, bots, I think initially they sort of debuted in the publishing space as another place to push web content. <laughs> um, and I personally uh, really thought that that was a misuse of bots, right? That you are reaching out to this place where people are, where people are active, where they are messaging, right? So either on Facebook Messenger or Twitter or SMS or, you know, talking to Alexa, whatever, and really like reaching out to people in those places and saying, hey, 
hey, we have a website. Would you like to come and read an article on our website? Um, and I think that is a real lost opportunity. And so um, with the Bot Studio, what we're trying to do is figure out how news and information fits into those emerging spaces and how we can reach audiences where they are with information that um, fits the, the platform. And so it's sort of a weird experimental storytelling outfit at the end of the day. Um, what we're doing is telling highly interactive um, stories in dialogue form where our users have a real um, say in sort of where the story goes, what pieces of the story they're exposed to, um, either by selecting options or by typing back to us. Um, and so we've been experimenting with that for uh, almost two years now and have really found that uh, the engagement and retention for those stories is really promising, uh, that it that it's not really just a tool, a tool for uh, dispensing information, but it, it's a great audience engagement tool. And so that's sort of the frame that we have decided to put there is um, is that it's a it's a place to tell great stories and to really connect individually with your audience. And so how would somebody who was being uh, contacted by a bot for you to tell them a story, how would they experience it? Would it pop up in their messenger or where would they come across the bot in the first instance? Yeah, so we so we have um, a couple of places you can do that. It, it could be Messenger. Um, we ship with Samsung phones, and so we're on RCS, uh, which is like built into RCS is sort of their their response to iMessage, if if people understand that even more easily. Um, but so it's a rich it's a rich messaging platform that's built into your phone, so it lives where your texts live, um, and we're pushing into other platforms um as well but yeah so it so it just starts you know you you users always have to initiate the conversation with us that's that would be very creepy if we just like texted you out of the blue um but once once they text us they sort of sign up for um to receive messages from us and then you know about every about every once a week we we send people a message that's usually um a little strange like we we did a uh a bread baking bot where you can learn to bake a loaf of no need bread with us uh and you, people it's a 20 hour user journey actually people do it for 20 hours and um and it's they call it like a pocket chef or um you know their their coach who knows how to bake bread um and because it's a really uh deeply immersive step by step um guide and so sort of taking service journalism what we would call service journalism to um to a more individualized level and you use the bots for kind of hard news stories as well absolutely and when you do that do people engage on kind of different levels of i guess the news pyramid so taking a traditional news story that starts with all the important information in the first paragraph and then gets a bit closer to the weeds by the end do you have people engaging in different stages of the story yeah, yeah. So the the model that you're describing, that that inverted pyramid, as we like to call it, um, is really born of newspapers and the fact that people had to clip from the bottom. So like when when they were typesetting, right, you had to clip from the bottom. And so it <laughs> that that um, structure is is really not applicable to to many other mediums, and frankly, it doesn't make a ton of sense from a storytelling point of view anyway. Um, if you've read one of those articles, they kind of fall apart at the end. It just seems like tidbits of information rather than any sort of coherent narrative. Um, so what so what we do with news is we know, you know, that this this problem, this sort of one size fits all 
problem is that you have to talk to all readers in one space and and with um, with something like a bot, what you can do is understand who your readers are, uh, what they're interested in, but also their level of expertise and um, get them that information in the way that suits them best. So, uh, for example, if we're <laughs> if we're reporting on cryptocurrency, um, we, which we do in great depth at Quartz, it's one of our obsessions, um, you know, cryptocurrency is extraordinarily difficult to understand. Um, and you know, like many of us, it sort of has come up in the zeitgeist and you realize one day that you're hearing this word everywhere and you don't really know what it means. Um, and so we have a really in-depth cryptocurrency explainer that sort of susses out, you know, in any cryptocurrency related story, how well do you understand this? And if you don't and you're ready to admit that you don't, <laughs> then we have a really um, involved story that continues to morph and weave in those details to help you understand at every step of the way what we're talking about in the context of that breaking news. And how sophisticated is the bot? I think a lot of people still know when they're talking to something that's got some preloaded script in it, whether that's customer service from a bank or another example. How how, um, how much flexibility in its conversational skills does a Quartz bot have? Um. A lot and a little at the same time. It really depends on on what that story is and and what the application is. Uh, we've done a lot of projects where we have very highly trained NLP models where it gets pretty sophisticated and can respond smartly to a huge number of inquiries. But you know, when we first launched the bot, you we immediately had um, <laughs> questions that we were not prepared to field. And people, because it's a machine, expect even if you're telling you know some some random sports story they for some reason expect to be able to ask who won you know, the gold medal in 1987 for such and such sport and we don't know we have no idea google knows right go google it <laughs> so but you know generally what we see is after a short amount of testing if, if you're very upfront about what the limitations of that particular bot are um you know your your engaged users sort of respect those boundaries and and uh start to drive between the lines so to speak um so you know i think i think our our bots are very sophisticated for on sort of the individual storytelling unit, uh, but we don't at present, and I don't believe really going forward, we're not trying to build anything that's all-knowing. And so I think, I mean, people, yes, they, they understand that they're talking to uh, a bot. And what's interesting is most people take great comfort in that. They would far prefer to talk to a bot than they would to a human uh, to go ahead and unpack that. Um, but they're also aware that what they're reading was written by a human. And so they build our, our pieces are still bylined and we our readers really do feel close to the people who are writing those stories and get to know them because they feel like they're chatting with them. And I was listening to you talk earlier and you talked about these as kind of choose your own adventure style stories. And one of the things that struck me and there's a bit of a leap in this question was that as we end up with people getting more and more personalized news and the kind of personalization of news, it's possible that you also get much more fragmented politics. You know, we've seen in the last five, ten years with digital media diversification, a, a kind of concurrent diversification of political identities. If news becomes more hyper personalized, will politics become more hyper fragmented? I don't have the answer to that question. I have no idea. I can I can speak to what I believe our role is as as journalists, which you know that that role is to behave ethically and to not allow 
that information bias to be a possibility in our work, right? Um, so, you know, you cannot help someone shutting you off. Like someone turns off the TV, the radio, throws your <laughs> physical newspaper in the trash, moves to another website. Um, we can't, we can't help that, but we can help what we put in front of people. And, um, you know, nothing that, that we're doing allows people to go down a sort of strictly myopic path where they're only exposed to things that they are interested in. The way that the story is woven on the back end is designed to um, expand for you as opposed to contract. And so open up new possibilities and new paths. And even if, you know, we we do a lot of uh, sort of confirming of people's choices, which is just good UI. You know, if someone makes a selection, they want to know that we are responding to that selection. But almost always, then we will follow up with whatever we wanted to follow up with in general, right? So the next thing that we do, like, they're still going to get the opposing point of view, they're still going to get the nut graph, they're still going to get the important context. So we're not allowing people necessarily or uh, to, to choose to skip important pieces of the news or different parts of the story. Um, we're just presenting them in a different order that's designed to increase their engagement, actually, in those pieces that they were probably going to ignore. And my last question is to ask what you would like to be able to do next with bots. What's kind of just around the corner that you're hoping to be able to do? Don't give away any commercial secrets, but can maybe paint a picture of where things could go in the next kind of three to five years. Oh, well, I, you know, I said this on the on the panel, too. I'm fascinated by this idea of a contextual layer, because for me, it's oftentimes um, a missing piece of media. And, and it does sort of get at my my passion, which is the, the one size fits all problem. Uh, but, you know, there there's oftentimes an urgent question that people have to understand the context of some sort of primary input, whether that is an article they're reading or, you know, a, a news stream, or perhaps they're watching a political candidate, you know, doing a stump speech. Uh, there's all kinds of of interesting contextual information that is currently sort of absent from from that from that moment of consumption and i would really love especially with with voice to to be able to understand those in something closer to real time so that we can provide that contextual layer on top of um, important sort of primary sources. So that's kind of like an instant primer. So if you find yourself watching something and you don't know anything about it and you want to really quickly understand the kind of assumptions you might otherwise make, it would be there for you to do that straight away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something as simple as tuning into the radio and hearing a politician speak, they they say something that connects with you but you can't for the life of you figure out who they are because you missed the introduction, right? And being able to say, who are they talking to? To your radio or whatever else you're listening on and and have that respond to you. Um, it, it can be as sort of, quote unquote, simple as that in terms of the interaction or and more nuanced as something, you know, a lot of people are playing in this sort of live fact checking area and the work there I think is really promising as well. It's a great thought to end on. Thanks very much, Emily. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Paul Chun. I'm with Knight Foundation. I'm the director of journalism, but focusing on technology innovation. Uh, and for the many Brits who listen to Government versus the Robots, what's the Knight Foundation? So the Knight Foundation um, is a foundation、um, funded by the Knight Brothers, and they used to own a bunch of newspapers in America,、um, including the Miami Herald, the San Jose Mercury News,、um, the Akron Beacon Journal, and so they form a foundation to really fund three things:、um, how do we inform and engage the public? Because we believe the path to democracy is through a, a public that's both informed and engaged with journalism. And you work specifically on technology and journalism. What other technologies that you're seeing being used in newsrooms across the states that that most interest you? Well, right now,、um, a lot of people have been thinking about AI as an issues, and in fact, you know, I was here in a panel talking about AI and deep fakes, which I'm not going to go too much to today. But、um, today, we actually make the announcement、um, that we funded seven projects that focus on. How do we use AI and deal with the impact of AI? Right. So the seven projects that we funded were both、um, technically oriented and somewhat more training oriented. So, for example,、um, we funded a project in India called Tato, where they're going to use AI to figure out how to combat misinformation in WhatsApp.、Um, so that project is a little bit more technical in nature. And then, meanwhile, we also funded. A project in Seattle、um, with the Seattle Times, where they're going to talk about AI's impact to the labor force. So it's really from a bottom-up approach. So I think right now, when we think about some of the big technology, is not how just the newsroom apply the technology, but how do we convey this technology to the public so that they understand it, right? So when we think about AI, it's really abstract as a concept, and when you use AI. People have different understanding of it, right? You know, because of popular science that you either think is like Jarvis from Iron Man, or some kind of、um, or humans. The popular show humans with、um, artificial sentience, and you know, and our understanding of AI is just really about patterns and trends. So I think you know, it's really important for us to sort of deconstruct some of these. Technology for the public, but at the same time, knowing how to apply this technology in journalism.、Um, something to think about also for journalists, you know, in terms of how do we deploy machine learning and AI as a way to make the gathering of journalism much quicker, much better, right? So another tool that we funded is how do we、um, use AI to analyze a huge document dump, right? Because back in the days when the government sort of give you a giant document like. Literally, I remember in the newsroom you have to deploy like, like a lot of journalists going through each paper document. Now we could sort of scan it and then deploy machine learning to perform analysis. So I think there's many useful application of some of these more advanced technology in the day-to-day gathering of journalism. And I know from my research that you worked previously at the Miami Herald and elsewhere, and worked particularly on the use of virtual reality and immersive storytelling in newsrooms. That's obviously something that you were very excited about.、Um, are you still as excited about it as a prospect for changing the way that we tell stories?、Um, so it's a tricky question because I think VR as a medium is still great, but is not democratized enough. 
um, it still present a lot of barriers. So when I was at the AP, uh, I helped AP scale the 360 in VR experience because we just think, you know, what better ways to get people immersed in a story than, you know, by putting them in the place. But when you think about all the obstacles that someone have to experience that story, right? They have to have some kind of headset. They have to have some kind of, you know, they have to be oriented to the environment. And what we find most of the time, people sort of just look around and then they just look forward. So, you know, in retrospect, I think VR still is great for some cases, but not for all cases, right? I think, you know, when we did the VR, you know, one of my first projects when we did VR is we... um showcase the Singapore airline, the basically the luxury first class suite. And then we also showcase um, sort of like the purchase presidential suite of the four seasons. We thought that was a really effective use of VR because normally, you know, unless you're super bourgeois, like you're not going to pay like $30,000 a night for a hotel room. So I think, you know, that has value in it. Now, do we want to put people in a war zone? That's debatable. So I think it really depends on the particular experience. So I think VR is still a very authentic and legitimate storytelling mechanism, but is not here to replace video, traditional video storytelling. And I wonder, a story is a story is a story from a journalistic point of view. But do you think that technologies like AI and VR will change some of the types of stories that we see more frequently? I think so. I mean, already you've seen sort of um, the, the funny thing about technology is sometimes you don't know how it creeped into the story, right? So when you read an earnings report um, from AP, that story might or might not be written by a human, right? It might be written by a by an algorithm through automation, right? So while the story itself might not be interesting, but it's of interest to somebody. Where back then at the AP. They just don't have enough journalists to write all this, all the earnings stories. And frankly, journalists does not like no journalist says I'm going to be the best earnings reporter ever. So I think what some of the technology do is enable it free up resources for journalists to do the accountability journalism that they can be doing. But at the same time, we could still meet the information demand for the audience, right? Because people still want to know sort of like some of the more. Um, structured information like you know my local teams did they win the baseball match or not you know i have some stocks with ibm what is their quarterly earnings right so while some of those stories are no longer written by humans it doesn't mean the need isn't there so i think sort of that's that single aspect and you talk about ar and vr um i think that is presenting a very interesting storytelling mechanism right so do ar you could bring story in live motion. So imagine if you're walking around a city and through the AR mechanism, you are learning about the city. You're learning about the historic events of the city. That's actually really great, right? It altered the way you think about the city and your environment that you're thinking about. So I think technology does enhance the storytelling, but you really have to understand in terms of what type of story fits that technology. You mentioned a few minutes ago the use of WhatsApp to spread disinformation, which is one kind of big growing systemic challenge in several countries, many countries around the world. How does the Knight Foundation kind of characterize the challenges around disinformation and what does it think is the most helpful way of tackling them? This is a great question. So the Knight Foundation have funded First Draft News with Clearwater 
And so she'd been doing a lot of research on how to combat misinformation, disinformation. And I think, you know, in order to combat the spread is both a human problem and also a technology problem, right? So I don't think there's a magic bullet that would solve them all. I think it's, you know, right now it's great that the research community are getting together with the journalism community and now pairing up technologists to think about how we combat that problem. Um, for example, um, News Tracker is one of the um, projects that we funded based out of Shorenstein Center, and they are tracking sort of um, these fake news outlets in Facebook, right? So now we're using technology to identify who are the bad actors, right? So I think you could use technology to figure out, A, who the bad actors is, um, B, how do you sort of measure that spread of information, disinformation, how do you deconstruct that? What are the elements that make this piece of information sort of bad? So I think, you know, in looking at it, it is a a challenge, but it's not a challenge that's just tech or just journalism. It's really a hybrid. Eagle-eared listeners to this podcast will hear this question somewhere else, but I'm interested to get your view. Crudely speaking, you've seen a kind of... Um, a diversification of media enabled by digital technology and we've seen a concurrent diversification or fragmentation of politics do you think there's a risk that as we use technology to personalize journalism further we end up with a kind of more hyper fragmented politics again great question i was like, i'm not in the politics space but i think when we think about the proliferation of a lot of these digital startups, I don't think that is bad. That's actually replacing some of the erosion of local journalism. And right now, Knight is making a big investment on local journalism. Um, in fact, we are increasing our spending to support local journalism um, over the next five years because we believe having a strong local base, whether you're digital or not, is the, is the core foundation of how we build trust and democracy with our community. I think technology itself is not inherently good or bad, but it depends how it's being deployed and how we understand it. So the bad part of technology is now you have multiple channel and distribution of information. So if a local politicians, you know, want to bypass their local media, they have their own distribution channel, right? And they could spread whatever information they want. So in absence of a local institution, a local journalism institution that could check the politicians, then they could basically, they will have the monopoly of the message. So I think, you know, would it increase fragmentation to a degree? But I think more importantly, what we want to think about is as distribution channels get fragmented, who is there to hold it accountable, right? If there's no local news organization that you trust and is credible, then to me, that that's an area where people could really spread bad information and and do public harm. Over the Atlantic in the UK, um, something that's happened recently, several of our local newspapers have had um, buyouts and very nearly went bust. And Facebook have stepped in and started putting huge amounts of money into funding and supporting local journalism. Do you think it's a good thing for tech companies who have ownership of some of the means of the problem to also try and be funding efforts on the solution? I mean, I think when you think about most foundations and most philanthropists, you know, and even tech companies, they didn't develop the product for bad, right? I think, I, I do believe for most of the creators and innovators, they think the product is doing the world good, but there are unintentional consequences of that, right? So I think, you know, should people take their money to do good? 
I would say, why not? If they're not funding journalism, who is? And so, to me, I want to do an open call. Say, whichever your political spectrum is, if you believe in the mission of journalism, you believe in the mission of local news, and you want to fund it, that shouldn't be a problem. My last question, Paul, is to ask.、Um, we often think about the kind of confluence of technology and politics, and politicians who have mastered that as doing so for for bad reasons. What advice would you give when you think about how technology will be applied in the newsroom to communicators, whether they're politicians or campaigners, about how to try and take advantage of new technological opportunities when trying to change the world for the better? I think it goes back to the user, right? So I think a lot of times, you know, especially in newsroom, politician they. Get their hands on technology, and they really think about sort of from their perspective how we spread the message. So I think it's really important to take the into account in terms of what is it the audience and the public wants, and how are they using technology, and really come basically do your storytelling from a more audience centric view rather than a top down traditional approach, right? So I think in some of these new model that we are seeing, and some of the new.、Um, Sort of collaboration that we're funding, we're really focusing on a solution-oriented model and a collaboration model, because again, we, we believe that you know, until the public are fully engaged and informed of the news information, that's when democracy could thrive. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all from South by Southwest this week. But before we leave you, I just wanted to mention another podcast we've been working on, which explores the future of digital identity with a range of global experts. It's part of the Good ID project, and the podcast is called Inside Good ID. If you're interested, it's on all the same platforms as Government versus the Robots, so please do keep an eye out for it. And we'll be back next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.